uh, just a reminder that uh, we have our men's prayer breakfast on, on, at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday, June 22nd, which is a week from this Saturday. Also on that same Saturday in the evening, we're having a family night. We have scheduled a film we're going to show called Railway Children. I have not seen it, but Mark Friedrich and his family have and said it's really, uh, it's really great, so we'll uh, provide dinner. And it's a great time for people to come and to get to know each other and to spend some time together. Also, we encourage everybody to go out at, to the uh, camparete.com website and to find out some information there uh, about the camp, how you can help, and how you can uh, support the camp and what they're going to be doing. And we need to be in prayer for them during that time. Pray for the staff. Pray for the transportation. Pray for uh, the kids that are going along, that they will be uh, spiritually prepared uh, as well as the, the, the counselors. And uh, also, we've got Vacation Bible School coming up in a little over a month on July 22nd to 24th. So if you're interested in helping out, see Mark Friedrich about that. And then check on the uh, DBM website about the Egypt tour coming up in, in uh, December. And we're get, gradually getting more and more people to sign up. I think we have about 20 right now. And so we still would really like for an ideal trip, we need to get at least um, 10 or 12 more people uh, to sign up. Also, the information with pricing and, and other information on the Greece and Israel tour should be up within the next few days. And if you're interested in going, I need to challenge everybody to, to uh, get their deposit in and to make a decision uh, ASAP because we had to guess at how many people were going to go in terms of locking down seats on the airlines. And if we need more, it's very likely if you dawdle and decide in October you want to go, that's going to cost you more because the flight costs will have gone up and uh, that kind of a thing. So if we lock down all these seats now, we can add seats. But it may, if, if you wait, it may be such that it will cost you a little bit more to, to uh, participate in the trip. So encourage everybody there. Uh, you can go on the Greece part, you can go on the Israel part, or you can combine them and go on both uh, at the same time on the same trip. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments so everyone can make sure that they are spiritually prepared to study the word, we are saved and we are positionally in fellowship with the Lord, but 
when we sin, that rapport is broken. We no longer enjoy the joy of our salvation. We're no longer enjoying the intimacy of our uh, walk with the Lord. And so it's necessary to make sure that we recover from sin through confession, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to the Lord. And then as we're restored to that position of fellowship, we can enjoy our spiritual growth and spiritual life with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your goodness, your kindness to us, your grace to us. Father, you have showered us with unbelievable blessings, and we hardly comprehend them because we we either are not being taught well or we haven't taken the time to truly think about them, or in many cases we just haven't grown enough to develop the capacity for them. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, challenge us, stimulate our desire Uh, for growth, our appetite to learn your word, that we might recognize that when this life is over with, it doesn't matter what we've done or accomplished here other than our spiritual growth, and that that's the only thing that we take with us, and that in and of itself determines our roles, our responsibilities, and how we will rule and reign with our Lord in the coming kingdom. Challenge us with these things and help us to understand these aspects of your word and why you have revealed these things the way you have to help us understand them more clearly and understand your ways and your your work in history and how it relates to an even broader issue in terms of Satan's rebellion against you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've been studying in 2 Samuel. We reached the point in 2 Samuel 8 where we were studying the Davidic Covenant. And we went through various passages after we outlined the covenant. The next thing that we did was we walked our way through numerous passages in the Psalms and in the prophets where the Davidic covenant was referenced as foundational to certain things that were going to happen in the future, both in terms of the coming of the Messianic King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the descendant or seed of David who will Uh, rule over the nations and rule over Israel. And then as we did all of that, we circled back, finished out that chapter talking about David's response, his humility, his grace orientation, and his the fact that he's just blown away by the fact that God has given him such a tremendous promise and such a covenant. Then we move from that before we get away from the covenant to go through Psalm 89. Now I envision that Well, we would move through Psalm 89 in two or three weeks, but there are some incredible things in Psalm 89, but we got to verse 10 in Psalm 89, which references some one, some creature called Rahab, Rahab. And so all of that is important to understand because this creature identified as Rahab, it's usually 
It is transliterated into English Bibles as Rahab, spelled the same way as the prostitute in Joshua 2, but it's not. It's spelled completely uh, differently in the in the Hebrew. So it's a creature that needs to be understood and identified. And as we go through various passages in the Old Testament, we see that Rahab is associated also with these other, what are sometimes just called sea monsters. And very little is done in relation to identifying these uh, sea monsters, and even less is done in trying to uncover their significance in terms of God's plan and purposes, and it's just usually skated over. And some of these that we will look at, and we'll touch on these three tonight that are on the title slide, Leviathan, the Tanin, usually translated, are they translated different ways, but one of the ways it's translated are dragons and sea monsters and sea creatures. So there's a range of translation, not all of which is necessarily correct, and then Rahav. So we're studying, continuing to study about what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant, and as such, as the author of Psalm 89 is really claiming the promises of, of, of the Davidic covenant, calling upon God to restore the stability of the Davidic monarchy and the Davidic descendancy, he spends a lot of time in the first part, the first 18 verses of the psalm, focusing on the uniqueness of God, his power, his magnificence, his omnipotence, and he delves into some uh, historical uh, ways in which God has provided deliverance for people. And so in the middle of this, in verse 10, we read, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty uh, mighty arm. Now, we started studying this last time. As I've already commented, we see that the Hebrew is over here, and there's a difference between the spelling of Rahab. It's a soft uh, bait here, so it should be uh, transliterated as a V, and you have the same thing in Rahab, but you have, if you notice here, these little markings under the uh, consonants are your vowels, and you have different vowels in this, in the name here from the vowels that are here, and you, this is also a different letter. This is a soft H, this is almost a guttural CH. So Rahab is this particular creature. And this term Rahab shows up in uh, four key passages, three other passages other than Psalm 89.10, shows up in Job 9.13, Job 26.12, and Isaiah 51.9. And the core meaning of the noun is arrogance, the arrogant one, if we were to translate it. And, And I pointed out the last two lessons, who is the most arrogant creature in the Bible? Well, that's Lucifer. So this indicates that Rahab is a uh, a depiction, one of the ways in which Satan is referred to and depicted. And this has led to some interesting challenges and mis, uh, missteps in interpretation because 
aside, Rahav is not mentioned in non-biblical literature, but the other terms, Leviathan, uh, Yam, which is translated for the sea, and the Tanin, these show up in uh, pagan mythology, in Canaanite mythology, and so there's this stipulation or this attempt by uh, liberals to say, well, the Bible came along and as I pointed out last time, Moses writes in about 1406 BC, and when he wrote the um, when he wrote the Torah, he's just borrowing from Canaanite mythology, and so it's really an, the way they interpret it is an attack on the inerrancy, the um, the inspiration, the infallibility, and the inerrancy of Scripture. That that the Bible's just a book like every other book. It's just another mythology like all the other ancient Near Eastern uh, mythologies. And I ended up last time by going through a series of points talking about the, the battle and the conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And this is very important to understand because we all have an affinity for human viewpoint. It is... It is that way of thinking that mo- is most comfortable for your little sin nature and my sin nature. We would rather uh, interpret God's Word in a way that makes our, our sin patterns comfortable than to recognize that we, like Satan, are in complete rebellion against God. And so the human race as a whole is in rebellion against God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the thinking of the human race is built on presuppositions that deny the reality of God, deny the existence of God, deny that God could even reveal himself. And so in their all of the way they all of the ways they construct their worldviews is to ground them in some sort of idolatrous system. Now, that can be an idolatrous system that involves many gods, pantheism or polytheism. And so Romans 1, uh, 16 to 20, talks about how they reject God and they worship the creature rather than the creator, and they begin to worship animals and creeping things and, and that sort of thing. And so you have the rise of these various mythologies, this occurred in the ancient world. Another way in which this is attempted is through sophisticated intellectualism, the rise of human viewpoint philosophy, where you have more uh, sophisticated, more formal structures of thought that seek to explain the origin of the universe, the origin of man, the origin of life, the purpose of life, meaning of life, apart from so-called deities and totally within a framework of human reason and human experience. It's a, it's a more sophisticated idolatry of the mind, not worshiping physical idols made out of wood or metal or stone, but worshiping idols of the mind. But it's still idolatry. It's still grounded in arrogance. Arrogance is Satan's original sin, and arrogance is at the core of our sin nature and er- everything that we do. So, in starting, uh, starting off and just just re- go- moving to the next level in our thought about about these creatures. Let's. I, I've 
tried to break this down into, into a little more understandable way, and I want you to think about this. Because one of the problems that we all have is we limit God in our thinking. We limit God in terms of his knowledge. We limit God in terms of his omnipotence. And we think too often, all of us here have been trained in thinking in terms of pure naturalism. Pure naturalism is explaining everything around us without reference to God. It is that, that the worldview that has uh, the most uh, affinity for atheism and agnosticism. Whereas if you're dealing with uh, primitive cultures, they're going to be involved in spiritualism and they'll be involved in pantheism pantheism or polytheism or some sort of uh, uh, physical idolatry. And they will have uh, these origin myths that are not uh, that are not atypical for uh, pagan cultures, and they're not dissimilar from the uh, origin myths and the uh, creation myths of the ancient Near Eastern people, like the Canaanites, the uh, Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. So, let's think this through in terms of of God. In eternity past, millions, billions of years ago, and God is omniscient. God knows all the knowable. There's nothing that God does not know. He knows what he is going to create. He knows when he will create it. He knows why he is creating everything, and he has a design and purpose for everything that he is creating. Okay? Nothing is the way it is by pure chance. We are not made the way we are made with our bipedal, upright uh, structure with two eyes and two ears and a mouth and a nose. We're not this way simply because it just happened that way. That's that's evolution. It's just by chance that we ended up this way because in a, a world where there is no creator God, then everything happens just by, by chance and everything comes from just pure matter. With the rise of uh, Darwinian evolution, evolutionary thought, it's not any different. Modern evolution isn't different from the evolution that's described by ancient paganism. Uh, matter is always eternal. But the Bible says that what is eternal is spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him by means of the spirit and by means of truth. God is spirit. So once you reject what the Bible says about the origins of man, once you reject that, that what is eternal is not matter but spirit, then what you're left with is a purely material way of looking at everything which means that everything is just an accident. Everything exists simply because there were chemical reactions caused by some accidental electronic discharge, and so ultimately we're just uh, nothing more than a blob of protoplasm that somehow got uh, electrified and something changed by accident, and then millions of years later something else changed, and everything is purely accidental. Therefore, there's no meaning, there's no value, there's no significance or purpose in anything in life. And so that gets drilled into us 
either directly or indirectly through many of the things that we're exposed to in our culture. Movies, films, television, speakers, teachers, professors, all of these all operate from that particular framework. But what the Bible says is that God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, everything, okay? Does that include Leviathan? Does that include Behemoth? Does that include the Salt Sea? Does that include this creature Rahav? Yes, it does. So we have to start by thinking that God created all living things, including Rahav, Leviathan, Behemoth, the sea, and the Tanin. There's a few others that we could throw in there, but we'll just limit it uh, to these five uh, entities that are referenced in a few passages in Scripture. And that God created them in the original creation in gen- described from Genesis 1-2, the six days of creation from Genesis 1-2 through 2-4. So these are real historical uh, entities. They are not mythological. They are, uh, they are real. So they are created by God. Now think with me a little more on this. God knew in eternity past that each of these creatures would find another purpose in the redefinition of creation by idolatry, okay? So God is designing them knowing full well how these features of their forms and their structure are going to be perverted in, within paganism. So that takes us to a second point. God in his omniscience designed all of these things meticulously down to the minutest detail that Leviathan is the way Leviathan is because God designed every aspect of Leviathan in order to teach something eventually, knowing how it would be used or abused. So their design is intentional with a view of how they would be used as biblical symbols as well as mythological representations or distortions. Now try to get your mind around that. God knows that he's going to create this creature called Leviathan, and it's a real creature. It has a certain form. We don't know exactly what that was. We have just a few uh, indications, especially in Job chapter 41, but that this creature is the way the creature is because God knows that the pagans are going to take this creature and they're going to assign mythological meaning to that creature. And in such a way that that mythological meaning, distorted as it will, will still reflect something about creation truth. So you have on the one hand something historical and on the other hand something that is not historical but is purely mythological. So let's break this down a little bit more. First of all, God knew that he would use them as metaphors for describing Satan. God's creating this entity called Leviathan, the entity called Rahav, the Tanin, and he knows that he's going to use this for a certain symbolic meaning. He creates the salt sea, all of the uh, turmoil and chaotic nature of the water. If you've ever been out 
on the open sea in a violent storm. You know just how scary it is, how chaotic it can be, and you're just, you just have no control whatsoever on what's going on. And so God knows that he's going to use that as a metaphor for the chaos of evil. It's no accident that it functions the way that, that it functions. But he also knows that it's going to be taken over and distorted to teach something similar within, within paganism. But he's got a literal meaning. These are literal creatures, literal events, and he's got a literal meaning there even though that's distorted by, by paganism. So that leads to the next point, which is thus the morphological features of these creatures were all intentionally designed this way. Now we're going to really stretch our brains a little bit, okay? What I mean by morphological features is the way they are constructed. Birds have feathers, birds have wings, birds have hollow bones, then you have other animals, they have other features, you have reptiles that have scales and uh, lay eggs, you have amphibious creatures, all of these different creatures. But what we don't think about very often is that a lot of those morphological features that you see in in these different animals didn't originate with them. Okay, I want you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Familiar passage, we usually go to this passage to talk about, um, to talk about worship, to talk about uh, prophecy, to talk about uh, Isaiah's call to prophecy, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective now. In verse 1 we read, The time when this vision occurred, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So uh, Isaiah has gone into the temple. God gives him this vision where, where this intersection between heaven and earth takes place with the Holy of Holies, and as Isaiah goes into the holy place, Instead of just seeing the the veil and the holy of holies where the ark is, he, it just opens him up, and he's seeing the throne of God. And above the throne of God, he sees these seraphs. The I am in seraphim is the plural in Hebrew, so seraphs uh, describe that. So we're going to look at how these seraphs are described in verse two. Then we're going to look at cherubs in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. In Isaiah 6, 2, we read, Above it stood the seraphim. Now, when did God create the seraphim? A long time before he ever created, created any birds or any reptiles or any animals or any human beings or any mammals, right? But look at the description of the seraphim. Each one has six wings. Who had wings first? Birds? Or seraphim, seraphim. Isn't that interesting? See, birds are just have just borrowed their morphology from seraphim. So they have six wings. With two, they covered their face. Two, they covered feet, and two, he flew. So they had feet, and they flew long before there were birds. So the the very first creature that flew and had feet and hands, we'll discover hands, and these various appearances were not humans, were not part of this creation. They weren't part of the animal uh, kingdom that we have, the animal taxonomy. 
And they cry to one another, and this is they're worshiping God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the reason I put that in there is we're looking at creatures that have six wings, and they're, they're singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Now, then we skip over to Ezekiel chapter 1. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, we get a what many people think is a pretty bizarre vision but it is similar to the vision that, that Isaiah saw, but it is given in much more detail. And here Ezekiel is going to have a vision of God's presence and this chariot that is going to come. And when he sees this chariot, he describes it this way in verse 4, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. So he's seeing this cyclone. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Think about the physics of fire engulfing itself and not going out. It's like the burning bush in Exodus chapter 4. The burning bush doesn't consume the bush, but you have fire. It's a different physics. It's a different form and function. It is fire that is not consuming. This great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, so it's a golden yellow color, out of the midst of the fire. I want you to pay attention to how many times fire gets mentioned in these passages we're going through. Also from within it uh, came the likeness of four living creatures. First thing to pay attention to is he uses this word likeness and that something was like. That's how he describes these creatures. He's not saying this is exactly what they were, but it's the only frame of reference he, ha he has to, to uh, tell us what he has seen. And he calls them four living creatures. Now, is there another place in the Bible where we have something like this described as living creatures? Revelation chapter 4 and 5 in the throne room of God, you have the four living creatures before the throne of God. So here we have these, again, four living creatures. Now they're described, we'll look at Revelation 4 in a minute, but they're described a little differently from those living creatures in, in Revelation, but there are also a, a lot of similarities. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Notice that word likeness. They had a likeness of a man. Likeness, it's the same word that's used in the Hebrew to describe man being created in the image and likeness of God. So it's pointing out a similarity. Has man been created yet? So you have this creature, this cherub, who has four faces, one of which is like the face of a man, but no man has been created yet. Think about that for a while. We don't really, I don't know, what else I can say about it, but it is something we need to recognize that there's a prototype taking place among the angels of different forms and functions that are then duplicated when we get into our present world and the, and the uh, present animal kingdom. So they each has the appearance of the likeness of a man. Each had four faces and each had four wings. Okay, now the seraphim had six, seraph six, Cherubim 4. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Excuse me. Um, each had four faces, each four wings. Verse 7, 
uh, they had the, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. When did God create calves and cows? Okay, that hasn't happened yet. So what this form that their legs have is going to be picked up and used again by God when he creates cattle. So their feet are like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. So they're, just, they're, they're, they're brilliant in their hue, and they're reflecting like a fire. So you've got all this fire around. This is brilliantly polished metal, and it's reflecting all that fi- fire that's, that's taking place around them. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. That's a really odd image that comes to your mind. So under their wings, they have these hands or arms that are sticking out. The hands of a man. But a man hasn't been created yet. So they have that form that that, that is going to be duplicated, used again when God creates human beings. Uh, And each of the four had faces and wings. Then we get into verse 10. It says, as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each had the face of a lion. On the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox. On the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. See, what I'm doing in all of this, you're saying, what does this have to do with Leviathan? I'm setting up a, a way of thinking that is not supported by anything you've ever heard in school or anything you've ever been taught from a naturalist worldview. So we have to start with what the Scripture teaches, that we have uh, this uh, face of a man, face of an ox, face of an eagle, face of a lion, long before lions and eagles and oxen and men are created. God reuses those patterns later on. And these are their faces, and their wings stretch upward, and each one touched another two covered their bodies. Now, they're just called living creatures in chapter 1, and then we get into uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, and we read, each one had four faces, and here he calls them cherubs. That's the connection, is now we know what those creatures are in chapter 1. And again, they have the face of a man, an eagle, an uh, uh and here it's the first one's a cherub. Earlier it was a, the one that's missing is the face of a calf. We'll have the face of an ox later on. So there is some similarity there between the face of a cherub, the primary face, and the face of an ox and the face of a calf. We're going to Revelation, skipping to the last book in the Bible. John goes into heaven, the apostle John goes into heaven and he's before the throne of God and he sees these four living creatures before the throne of God and he says that the, the first living creature is like a lion. That's, he don't, they don't have four faces. They have four living creatures. The first one has a face of a lion, the second a calf, the third a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And each has six wings. So those different faces were not associated with seraph. In Isaiah chapter 6, they're associated with the cherubs. And then you have six wings with seraphs, and these have six wings. So this seems to be a third order of angel that is similar. But they were created this way with these same body parts that are part of different animals once God creates in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1. 
And they're doing the same thing, singing the same thing that the seraphs in Isaiah chapter 6 are singing, holy, 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 uh, there was Lord God of hosts, here Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now another thing that we learn in Scripture, we look at Psalm 104, 4. I've already pointed out the significance of um, a fire. And in Psalm 104, 4, we have this coming out again. He makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Now, what's interesting is the role that fire plays in the midst of the description of these angels. One of the things that I did today is I looked at the word seraphim, which has traditionally just been translated as what? Burning. What you have to have to create burning? You have to have fire. So that is one of the meanings that's listed for uh, for seraphs. And as I was reading through the article, they said the, the, the first meaning is a serpent, a burning serpent. Interesting. I bet you never thought of describing a seraph in those terms. Now, Satan or Lucifer was a cherub. He was not a seraph. But you have this this meaning associated. That word saraf in the Hebrew is also used to apply to to serpents. And you know about the uh, fiery serpents in the wilderness that were that had a a, a poisonous bite. These vipers uh, that showed up as a result of Israel's uh, rebellion against God. And so he's disciplining them with these vipers. And they're called, it prob, everybody speculates they're called fiery vipers because the, the bite would burn. So there's something interesting going on there. It also is used in a variety of adjectives referring to a winged serpent or a basilisk. You know, if you saw Harry Potter movies, you know what a basilisk looks like. What does that look like? It looks like a dragon of some kind, right? So it's... Um, and then they conclude in their fifth point, they say, it's uncertain whether these creatures are to be understood simply as serpents, as suggested perhaps by uh, certain statements in verses 1 through 3, that's in Isaiah 6, or as composite creatures or as having human forms. So they're uncertain about that. But when you look at the text, it's a little bit of of everything that's that's sort of rolled in. So you have this this aspect to it of fire and burning. In Ezekiel twenty eight fourteen, talking about the fall of the anointed cherub, it describes this creature who sins and falls as the anointed cherub who covers. The word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach which is where we get the word Messiah, which means someone who is anointed or appointed to a position. He is the anointed cherub who covers. Now, the word cover has to do with providing a veil or a covering to separate one area from another area. So this cherub's role is to create a covering around the throne of God to prevent others from directly looking upon God. That's his role. It is a function like the veil in the temple that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. You remember what was on that veil in the temple? What's embroidered on that veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies? 
cherubs. So he is the anointed cherub that covers. This is referring to to Lucifer. And it describes his pre-fall condition as being on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Here's that mention of fire again. In verse 18, then we read, uh, as God indicts him, says, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, and it devoured you. What are angels? They're like ministers of fire, okay? So there's, there's this whole imagery there of fire and this burning that's going on, and that's going to, that's happening prior to creation, that's happening in the, in heaven, it happens in relation to the angels in all these descriptions, so what we see in our creation today is a reflection of these forms that were originally used in the angelic creation in heaven. Now, all of that is simply to get you to think more about what you're reading and what we see in the Scripture talking about why God created these creatures to be the way that they are. So the next point is, and I don't have a slide for this, that God also knew in eternity past that in corruption, fallen man would begin to worship the creature rather than the creator and would turn these creatures, the, the sea, uh, Rahav, Leviathan, the Tanin, the Behemoth, would turn those creatures into gods or deities or forces that fight the gods in order to bring about their view of creation. So God knows how they're going to be formed as the way he intends them as real actual creatures, but how then they're going to be perverted by mythology and the meanings that will be assigned in all of these. There's there's an interesting similarity between so many of these ancient, um, ancient origin myths that you have, whether it's in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, whether it's in Aztec mythology or Peruvian mythology, or whether it's in Egyptian or Babylonian mythology, they all have very similar elements. But what's but the creation it comes out of these the bodies, the matter, whatever that is, of these gods and goddesses as they existed before there's an earth or anything else. In other words, even in ancient pagan mythology, matter is eternal, not spirit. So that's a head-to-head collision that's going to take place whenever you're dealing with any human viewpoint worldview versus a divine viewpoint worldview. And that if you're spiritual, then it's a totally different issue in life than if you're just accidental protoplasmic matter and there's nothing more to it uh, to it than that. So God designs all of these aspects of creation knowing exactly how they're going to be used and abused in creation, how he's going to use them to teach certain things, and how paganism is going to distort, the, distort those things. So in God's incredible ability to multitask, he's able to use 
the, the forms of these creatures in terms of a literal, actual sense and meaning, as well as to use them in terms of the perverted uh, connotations that will develop in, in paganism. And so God will use both in order to communicate to his pagan fallen audience in the ancient world to communicate to them uh, about how sin and arrogance brought chaos into the universe and how God has defeated the arrogance and the chaos in some primordial battle before Genesis 1, in some primordial battle, and that God eventually is going to resolve the problem of evil and sin and chaos. So all of this is really more than simply a metaphor. In um, As we look at uh, in these passages, I've just listed five. There's about nine different... Um, different terms, uh, ten different terms that are used that come out and are also taken over in paganism. I'm just going to look at these five. Yom refers to the sea, and it mostly refers to the salt sea. Very interesting that in the Bible you have the salt sea, you have the deep, this term tehom that's used in Genesis 1-2. There's darkness on the face of the tehom. And the word tehom is a cognate to the word Tiamat, who is the goddess of the sea. So there's, there's a polemic there embedded in, if you know the Hebrew, you understand Babylonian mythology, you know that there's this polemic. A polemic is an argument against showing the, the power of God versus the impotence of the pagan gods and goddesses in their worldview. There's also these creatures called the Tanin, now, yam, I think, is a corporate term. The sea represents chaos. The sea represents a cor- the corporate entity that houses evil and the demons and, and Satan. And the tanin probably represents a demon, but in some places it can represent Satan. So it's not like it's a hard and fast rule that in every place it always means the same thing. And in some places it just refers to sea creatures like in Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 1. Then you have this creature, Leviathan. And who is Leviathan and what does Leviathan represent? Then you have the creature that is mentioned in, Gen- in uh, uh, Psalm 89.10, Rahab. And then you have this other creature named Behemoth. The interesting thing about the term Behemoth is you'll hear all kinds of people talk about Behemoth. This is an illustration. They'll talk about Behemoth. Oh, that's just some Behemoth some great creature, some big thing, or whatever it is, and they have no idea that that term came out of the Bible. It's not used anywhere else other than the Bible, but it's, this is sort of a reverse of what, um, uh, what, what is normally talked about in this, in this thing, and I'll come back to this in a minute. You have people who don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in behemoth, and they use that term all the time. In the same way, what you have here in the Bible is you have... Um, the writers of Scripture who do not believe or affirm anything in pagan mythology, but those these creatures in pagan mythology have uh, developed a certain connotation. And so the, the writers of Scripture use them because these cultural connotations have become embedded in the pagan culture that, that the Bible is speaking to, 
And so the writers of Scripture will use these terms because they picked up an idiomatic or metaphorical meaning, and and you can use those terms without affirming the the, the paganism that lies behind it. Now, I created this chart to try to communicate that. So over here you have God the Creator, and He creates all creatures. He creates the sea, Leviathan, Behemoth, the Tanin, uh, Rahab, and they're all designed with a purpose. These literal creatures that are created in the first six days of creation. In a direct line, these are referred to in the Bible always as actual historical creatures. That's point one. But God also knew that the pagans would turn these into mythological deities, and so God knew that they would use his creatures to represent pagan deities, that is, demons, and to describe these fake origin stories, these, these myths. But that enters into a cultural connotation, which is then uh, used to t- communicate and that's point number two, with a view to their mythological connotations to communicate God versus evil. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In the ancient world, for example, in Horus you have the statement, thus did Apollo rescue me. Now Horus believed in the myths and the gods and goddesses of Rome. But then in John Milton, you know who John Milton is. John Milton was a Puritan. He was a poet. He wrote about a 250-plus page poem called Paradise Lost. He wrote another one called Paradise Recovered. And in Paradise Lost, he tells the whole story of the creation and the fall. He talks about Satan, and he talks about uh, Satan's fall and rebellion against God and his temptation of Adam and Eve, and he goes on and on for 250 pages. He in no way believes in the reality of pagan gods and goddesses. But because by this time in 17th century England, the people knew the stories, the myths of the Romans and the Greeks, but they didn't believe them, but they knew the stories and what they were intended to teach, that he could use those gods and goddesses in a non-religious sense to communicate a cultural concept. So, for example, in one place he says, Apollo from his shrine can no more divine with hollow shriek the steep of Delphos leaving. Apollo would spend part of his time at the shrine of Delphi. So he talks about this, but he's only using that in a metaphorical sense. He has no belief system in it that's, that's existence. You can, I can go on and on. I'll probably come back to that next week, but I'm running a little short of time right now. And I just want to make this point that because the writers of Scripture use terms related to pagan mythology, it doesn't mean they're believing in anything related to that pagan mythology. It's that those ideas and concepts have entered into the culture of the ancient Near East, and so they're borrowing that in a sense to teach the the biblical truth of God destroying uh, evil. Okay? So... um, I didn't get nearly as far as I wanted to. That is simply the introduction to help us understand that background to these kinds of terms. And then next time what I want to do is start working our way through Job. But I I want us to remember that in God's creation, it's just brilliant. It is so much more complex than any of us have the capacity to appreciate. 
and that God designed all the creatures and embedded within their DNA all of the multiplicity and the complexity of the forms that we see uh, around us in our world today that weren't there uh, thousands of years ago when God originally created. And there's so many other aspects to this and uh, that need to be developed and explored, and there are people with uh, answers in Genesis, and there's people with... Um, uh, Institute for Creation Research, who are doing some phenomenal work developing out all of these different uh, different aspects. But this just sort of sets up what I want to go into next time, but it creates our mindset that we have to think in terms of God designing creatures to communicate and teach things that will be used both correctly by the prophets and the writers of Scripture and incorrectly by the perversion of the the pagans who've rejected the truth of Scripture. So before I close in prayer, we're going to have a uh, speaker come up here in just a minute. Uh, I met J.T. Ford probably about six or seven years ago. He's a little bit younger at that point up at Camp Arete. And uh, Jeff had asked me a couple of weeks ago if J.T. could come up and give his testimony, talk a little bit about what he wants to do because in many ways he sort of embodies what... uh, the, the, the leadership at Camp Arete is hoping to do with, and, and encourage the, the uh, participants to do, and that is strengthen their relationship with the Lord and come to recognize that there are ways in which they, they can serve the Lord. And so we're going to hear from JT. So JT, as soon as I say amen, you come on up here. There's a handheld mic here for you to use, okay, and just uh, uh, take your time to uh, talk to us about how the Lord's leading you. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to have our our thinking expanded and challenged as we reflect upon your word and and the implications of your word and thinking about your creation and you as the creator God and recognizing that all within within the creation that we know is directly related to a broader Conflict, this rebellion, this angelic rebellion we just touched on in Ezekiel 28 with the fall of Satan and why uh, the human race has been created and how this connects. And we pray that you would help us in the coming weeks to put these things together and then come to understand the implications of that for why you've entered into contracts of covenants uh, with the human race, with Abraham with Israel, with with David, and the significance of all of this and these uh, allusions that we have in Scripture to these these monsters and what all that means. And all this is part of Scripture, so we need to understand it so that we can read your word with, with complete understanding and spiritual discernment. And we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.
Sorry, I have a PowerPoint I wanted to hold, pull up real fast. Sorry, I'm loud too, so I figured I could just yell. It's a strength and a weakness. Um, people hear me everywhere, which can be positive and negative. I'll just talk while I get this up. Um, well, howdy. Um, I'm MJT. So I graduated from Texas A&M about three or four weeks ago uh, in the, about the 9th of May, which seems like forever ago, but really wasn't that long ago. Um, so I go to Pine Valley Bible Church with uh, Pastor Bruce Bumgardner, uh, and I've been going there since I was in middle school, so a good eight, nine years. Um, but I grew up going to Camparete, as uh, as you heard, um, Jeff has poured into me, Mr. Phipps. And uh, I think um, without uh, the purpose of Camparete is to pour into high school students and teach them how to reach the nations for Christ and teach them how to live their spiritual lives in a way that uh, represents Christ. And I think that I or I know that I wouldn't be the same man I am today if I if it wasn't for Camparete. Just the amount of doctrine that's been poured into me and the amount of uh, spiritual leadership and the ability to lead. I was able to counsel some of the uh, the littler camps that we did at... Um, we, uh, we would have little camps throughout the year at Sandy Creek Bible Camp, which is in Brenham, which I actually ended up working at. Um, but Camparete has been a huge part of my life. Um, I don't know if y'all know of Pastor uh, David Roseland, but which I think he comes here for Schaefer Conference. But I was even able to go to go go to his house, and he like taught me how to like um, make sermons and how to uh, um, be a pastor in a sense. Um, I mean, snapshot. Um, but uh, a little bit about my story. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, um, I wanted to be in the military. But when I was born, uh, I was born with only one kidney. Um, so I had been directing my life to uh, do to go in the military. I was—I mean, I was young, but um, that was my goal. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was a colonel in the Air Force, and my dad was in the Army. So I wanted to go do uh, military. But I found out without a kidney, you can't be in any branch of the military, and that's Coast Guard, National Guard, anything. So from eighth grade, when I was 14, 15 years old, I decided I wanted to do missions. Uh, I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to go in the other mission field. Um, so I started learning Spanish, and I started going to um, mission trips to Honduras. Uh, well, not Honduras. Uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, Zimbabwe, Portland, Oregon. It's all the same thing. Um, um, but I started going on all these different trips to uh, because I was pursuing this. And uh, now I'm finally – I even, like, my major in college was international studies – and I studied Spanish, and I actually lived in Mexico for three months. And now I feel like all of my goals that God has allowed me to be, go through, and honestly, has orchestrated, organized all of this. 
and uh, set up all of these. Like I would not be able to do any of the things that I've done without Christ. And uh, now I feel like it's a great opportunity. And now I'm going, so I'm here to I'm talking to you now because I'm going to um, through through Hio Peru um, with uh, Campus Crusade or Crew. So that's a tongue twister for you. Through Hio Peru with Crew. Wait, Peru with Crew. I can't even say it. Um, so here's a map. This is a little bit about uh, where I'm going. Um, the arrow is pointing to the city I'm going to. It is an arid town. They're in the northern part of Peru, and it is not a tourist town. Um, it is a a normal Latin American city. But I'm going there. Um, there's so what the work that works. Or, so I'm going with Campus Crusade or Crew. Um, they shorten it to Crew to make it more hip for college students and to look better on T-shirts. Um, but I'm going with Crew, and they have a they have a passion of working with college students. And college student ministry is such a strategic ministry. Because college students are still trying to figure out their own identity. Um, I've, I've actually seen a lot of encouragement in college students recently, uh, especially at A&M. I don't know about other schools, but at A&M, there's just this Christian bubble there, and college students are really passionate about Christ. Um, I think that as I've been talking to people and telling people about what I've been doing, um, I've heard a lot of pessimistic views towards uh, the college student age, but uh, I, just a word of encouragement. Some of the um, some of the people who are most supportive of me going overseas and my ministry are college students who just graduated from A and M. Um, so there's a great passion among college students, um, but they're still trying to find their identity. Um, so so in Peru, I'll be working with college students and meeting with those who don't believe in me and those who uh, might be involved in a church already. So competition. Also, I have a lot of slides just to keep me on track, not uh, necessarily for y'all's sake, but for mine. But uh, this is the, oh, I think I got this name right. This is the Basilica in uh, the middle of uh, in the middle of the square of Trujillo. Um, but in Peru, there's this huge culture of cultural Catholicism. So it's a, they say, or you're like, oh, are you religious? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm religious. Uh, my grandma's Catholic, so I'm Catholic. And you're like, okay, well, do you know what that means? And they don't have a deep understanding of what the gospel is. So they're religious, and they think that they know what Jesus means and who Jesus is, but they don't really know any of the Bible. They just, it is a cultural thing that everyone's Catholic. But once you start asking questions, they don't know what that means. Um, we want to, the girl who is on, so there's been two teams in this city where I'm going. I'm the third year that people have been going to this city. And uh, last year they were giving the gospel to this girl who considered herself very religious. And she, and as they were giving the gospel to this girl, they got to John 3.16. They said, for God so loved the world, uh, who gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the girl looks at them and says, like, wow, I've never heard that verse before. And you're like, wow, that is a a basic, like a simple key verse to not hear. So you just see how there's a big level of cultural of, yes, I'm, I'm Catholic, but there's not a, uh, there's not a deep understanding of who Christ is and the gospel of grace and that we can't do anything to be saved. And even... That's like the more specifics. They, I don't think they really understand who Jesus is aside from a statue in the church. Um, but God is at work. This is actually a picture of some of the students in Peru. Um, I found this on Facebook today. They don't know I stole this. So, um, But 
I'm excited to go work with them. These are some of the students. So I'll be fun, I'll be working with an organization on these different college campuses, and it's an area for them to come together and pray or worship God and encourage one another, and also be trained in how to uh, grow in their faith, kind of like Camparete, but on a college campus kind of scale. And uh, God has really done some great work with some of these leaders who have been wanting to train others in the community. Um, so one of the one of the missions is uh, one of the goals of like why I'm going is uh, to win people for Christ. So to tell people the gospel, and I don't think that we can convince somebody to believe in Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But um, we're there to plant the information and plant the seeds and tell them about Jesus, and also train up people who train the people who do believe in Jesus. And uh, this is kind of what Camparete did, does and did is uh, training people who already believe in Jesus how to give the gospel and how to read their Bible and share their faith and grow deeper with Christ. And then finally, train them on how to go out. Um, the In Matthew, it says, uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and teaching them to do also. Or in Second Timothy two two, it says, Teach these things that I've taught to you to faithful witnesses who will be able to do so also. I butchered that, but it says teach it to others. Um, and that's what the goal is. We should. The goal of a missionary is to work yourself out of a job and train other people to do your job because they can do it a lot better than uh, we can uh, or I can. Um, so my my what I'm planning on doing in Peru is I'm planning to um, meet up with students and help them grow in their faith um, encouraging the Christians that are already there, but then there's also going to be a huge level of uh, evangelism and talking to people who don't believe in Jesus. I think it's almost every day I'll be out on the college campuses talking to people about Jesus. I don't know if I mentioned this, but there's like forty to 50,000 college students in this town, um, and they're on a few different college campuses, so it's not like A&M who has 70,000 students now. Um, there's like a bunch of little college campuses that we'll be going on. Um, so I just wanted to share a few photos. This is a video that has no sound, but you kind of get the uh, you kind of get the gist of what's uh, happening. They're singing a song and uh, worshiping on campus. So this is kind of some of the uh, encouragement aspect that uh, will be going on. And uh, this is just some pictures of uh, the college campus, and uh, this is the one in the bottom corner. The bottom right corner is uh, the center, center square. And uh, there's that, there's the basilica on the other end. And then uh, there's a picture of the town, so it shows it's just, it's a big town. There's a lot going on. And uh, these are just some of the students and some of the leaders. Uh, the blonde people in the pictures are not from Peru. Um, they were the team last year, just in case you were wondering. Um, but yeah, so right now this summer I've been meeting, going to different churches and talking to people and just sharing what I'm doing. Um, I'd love for whoever's interested to uh, be part of my ministry. Um, I have um, I have these cool cards with my picture on them, um, and it just reminds you uh, it's not just handing out photos of myself. I sign autographs. Um, just kidding. Um, they're already autographed. I pre-autographed them. Um, just kidding again. Um, no, they're just, they just have my, uh, my uh, name on it and just some prayer requests. I'd love for people to be in prayer for me as I'm going through this process. And uh, it has some prayer requests on the back of it and shows where I'm going. And uh, it also has a section with my email. And uh, it also has a, it also on the card, it has a link. If y'all 
feel led or feel led by God to support my mission financially, and that's not why I'm here. Um, to a, it's there's a link on the back as well. But uh, I'd love for y'all to talk to me. I send out update letters as well and prayer updates, talking about what I'm doing and where I'll be going. And uh, so if y'all'd like to be part of that, I'd love to get your email and I can add you to uh, my updates. I live, I put a lot of pictures in there because I know people don't read. Um, or I don't read, so I put a lot of pictures in there and small captions. Um, so um, if y'all would like to be on that, come talk to me. Or if y'all would love to, if y'all would like to hear more information, or even I'd love to uh, talk more, even if it's later in the week, I'd love to meet up with y'all or and tell y'all more of what you're doing uh, or what I'm doing. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I am doing in Peru. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'm going to close and I'm going to close in prayer. At least my Part. I don't know what else uh, um, um, Pastor Dean has, um, but I'm just going to pray because I hate to do any of this without God. Um, so God, I thank you for letting us come here and uh, worship you and learn more about um, the wonderful creatures that you made that uh, were designed to be scary and intimidating. And God, I just thank you for telling us a little about that. And God, I thank you for uh, giving us the financial resources and the ability and the freedom to go over the throughout all the world and make your your name known to all nations god and uh jesus you're the only uh or jesus is the only um is the only reason we're here and he's the uh the the gloriousness of his gospel or your son's gospel god is the only reason we're allowed or we should be here and we should be proclaiming you and telling it to other people because in jesus in Jesus, there's true life and joy and purpose and peace, and without that, all is vanity and chasing after wind. And uh, God, I thank you for all these things, and I pray that um, your name would ultimately be glorified. And in Christ's name, amen.